Gracious Father in heaven, I ask for your help now as we undertake to open this great doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. It is a great, sweet, powerful, strong, historic, life-giving truth. And I long for it to be understood and believed and cherished and savored. And that's the work of your Spirit, Lord, to take my sentences of exposition and make them kindling for a fire of faith. So come, I pray, and put your match to these words I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. One more question on chapter 4 before we leave it and go next week, Lord willing, to chapter 5 of this great book of Romans. It comes from chapter 4.22, the words, Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. The, the it refers to faith and the him refers to Abraham. And so it is, therefore faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So faith is counted as righteousness for Abraham. Now we've seen that three times already. Verse 3, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 5, at the end of the verse, his faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 9, at the end of the verse, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And now we see it again in verse 22. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. The question is, what does that mean? Does it mean that faith is our righteousness? Or is at least a significant component of it which God observes, sees for what it is, and credits as what it is to our account. So that our performance of faith is the ground or a significant part of the ground of our justification. Another way to ask it would be, does it mean that justification, being set right with God, costs $5 million and you can only come up with $1 million called faith? And God looks at this and being the merciful God that he is says, good enough. I will count the one million that you have now paid through the performance of this faith as your righteousness. And I'll contribute whatever I have to to finish it off. But you are now accepted, forgiven, 
righteous before me because I credit your faith as the righteousness that I demand. Is that what it means when it says faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness? Or is justification something very, very different? Not God's seeing a righteousness in us that we have done, that he may have helped us do, but rather, could it be that faith being reckoned as righteousness means that there is an alien righteousness, namely God's righteousness in Christ, which is credited to our account through faith, and that these words, he credits faith as righteousness, are meant to carry that meaning, not the meaning that the faith is the righteousness that we provide as the basis of our justification. That's the question. Now, let me tell you why, before I answer it, I'm spending a whole sermon on this question. Number one reason. I think there are four. This phrase, faith is credited as righteousness, is very liable to misunderstanding. It sounds like it means... I I took a $30 check to the bank at Norwest, and I signed the back, and I gave it to them, and they credited my check to my account. It's my check. I earned the money. I gave it to them. They credited it to my account. I do faith. God sees the faith. God credits the faith to my account. That's a pretty natural way to understand this phrase. I don't think it means that. And if it doesn't mean that, it's going to take some looking to see why. And we need to see why it matters. Here's a second reason why I linger over this. Paul spends a whole chapter in the 16 chapter greatest book in the world on this quote from Genesis 15:6. That's what the chapter is. The chapter is an exposition or an unfolding of that word and its implications for Abraham and for us. That's what chapter 4 is. The whole chapter is dealing with justification by faith alone, apart from works. And he uses this phrase as his key text from Genesis 15, 6. So I get the impression, don't you, that this is big. I mean, a whole chapter on this one phrase. And you, I don't know where you are this morning. You, I don't know whether you're sitting there saying... Words, 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 they don't have any significance to me at all. Just words, words, words. What, what's the big deal? You may be there. I hope you won't be by the time we're finished. Or you may feel that this is big. And I just want to say, this is huge. Does your legal standing right now, before the judge of the universe... As innocent, accepted, acquitted, not guilty, does that legal standing before God rest on a righteousness in you 
or a righteousness in Christ? That's a big question. That's a huge question. Here are two things that hang on it. One is the fullness of the glory of God's grace. If your righteousness or your standing before God rests on a righteousness in you, the fullness of the glory of God's grace is diminished. And if you are resting on a righteousness that is in you, even if God gave it to you, then the peace that God means for you to enjoy is diminished. Those two things are at stake. The glory of God's grace and the peace of your own soul. The very next verse that we're going to come to in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. The glory of God is at stake in its fullness. The peace of your own soul is at stake in its fullness. And a huge difference in Paul's mind exists between whether there's a righteousness in you that warrants your justification or a righteousness outside of you in Christ that warrants your justification. Now, you you may say, I don't get the difference and it doesn't mean anything. I don't compute with that at all. Well, that's why I'm preaching this sermon. Because if that means little to you right now, that difference, you really need to listen. Because something very great in your life is at stake. That's my second reason for lingering over it. Paul spends so much time on it, it must be important. Third reason why I linger over this question. I'm a pastor charged to preach the Word of God. And according to Ephesians chapter 4... Verse 14, this should be my goal in this congregation. In order that they might no longer be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Wind of doctrine. Wind of doctrine. Leaves left over from the beautiful wedding yesterday. Leaves blowing all over my yard these days. You can't see my sidewalk. It's just covered with yellow leaves. Beautiful. The wind blows this way. They go this way. The wind blows that way. They go that way. But the tree doesn't go anywhere just stands there. Wind blows against it. Why? It's got roots that go down under 11th Avenue round sewer pipes, probably. (laughs) Under the sidewalk. And it just stands there. When the wind blows, it trembles a little bit. And it doesn't fall over. And it doesn't go this way. And it doesn't go that way. The image Paul has in his mind here is that plus waves. So the, the leaves fall on the, on the water and the wind blows and the leaves go this way and the wind blows and the leaves go that way. And I could change the metaphor here. I love this image. Paul wants you to be dolphins, not leaves, floating on the surface. I once asked in this church where all the children were here, nobody... Wants to be a jellyfish, do you? Little girl said, I do. 
And I said, no, you don't. Because jellyfish, they just blow with the tide. Dolphins, they go where they want to go. So dolphins and trees are strong. Leaves and jellyfish are weak. And I'm a pastor. And my job is to make trees and dolphins, not leaves and jellyfish. And winds are blowing all over the face of America. And winds of doctrine come and winds of doctrine go. And I want you to be strong. I don't want you to blow over. I want you to know the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of God in Christ through faith apart from works of the law. Now, there's a big theological sentence. The imputation. I want you to know that word and I want you to know the reality behind it. It comes from the verb impute. And you know this word. Don't impute to me bad motives, we say. We mean, don't take something that's not mine and make me wear it. I didn't have that motive when I said that. Don't impute to me bad motives. So we know the word impute and how it works. Now here we're talking about the imputation of a righteousness that belongs to another that I did not perform and it is imputed to me. Through faith, apart from works of the law. Now that's a doctrine, a teaching of Romans 4 that I want you to have. It is a glorious, life-giving truth. I don't want you to be blown over by anything that comes along to rob it from you. There's a difference between imputation and impartation. Impart, impute. God does an imparting work. Oh yes, and it is great. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He comes into our lives and He begins to impart to us the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we call it, or holiness, or other names are given to it. And little by little, we are brought into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's a glorious thing. But it isn't the gospel. This work of God by which he imparts to us gradually holiness and love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control is grounded or built upon or founded on something deeper and more fundamental and more glorious and that is Imputation. So if you have the two ideas of impartation of graces and gifts into your life and imputation of Christ's righteousness to you, get the order right. Because if you don't, you will miss out on the fullness of your peace with God. And you may miss out on God entirely. The imparting work of God's Spirit is built upon the imputing work of the Father. The righteousness of Christ is made over to us by imputation so that He can begin to impart to us 
graces and gifts. You must be reckoned perfect before you can make headway in becoming good. You must be counted perfect before you can make the first baby step in becoming good. That's awesome. And it happens by faith. Uniting you with Jesus Christ, who wrought out a perfect righteousness for us, so that in the twinkling of an eye, in the first act of saving mustard seed-like faith, God imputes to us the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we are complete in Him and now may make little steps of progress in becoming like Him in this world. So my reason number three for why I linger over this question is that Ephesians tells me to help you become trees and dolphins rather than leaves and jellyfish. And the only way you will escape being blown around by winds of doctrine is to have your roots sunk down in biblical truth like this. Here's my fourth reason for why I'm lingering over this. In the experience of God's people throughout the centuries, this teaching, this truth, this doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of God in Christ through faith for you, apart from works, has been a great deliverance from bondage for many saints. Why should Bethlehem be denied this? When I was thinking about why should I preach on this another Sunday to try to get this right, here's the thought that came to my mind. Why should Bethlehem be denied this? I don't care what pragmatists say about how you're supposed to preach today. Why should we be denied a truth that tens of thousands of 17th and 18th century Christians were strengthened by to the stake Why should you be denied to know this, to love this, to cherish this, to live in this, to live and die by this? Why should you be denied? Because we're told today that pragmatism reigns. Nobody can listen to 30-minute sermons. you got to do seeker-sensitive stuff. Theology 101. Nobody can get these things anyway. So let's all be leaves and jellyfish. I don't believe it. And if you choose to go to sleep halfway through the sermon, that's your problem. Because I'm going to do my best to keep you awake. (laughs) By whatever means I can. So that you will embrace a truth that will send your roots down deep. So that when the winds blow, you will not blow over. Especially at the judgment day. In history, this doctrine has rescued generation after generation from bondage. Let me give you one illustration from the life of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress 300 years ago or so. 
Bunyan was in his 20s. He was tormented with conscience and lack of assurance and did not know God in a saving way, though he knew facts. And one day, it all changed. I want to read you what he wrote in a sweet little book called Grace Abounding for the Chief of Sinners. Here's what he said. One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness, for that was just there in front of Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. Let me put it like this. Here's what I'm after. Here's why I'm lingering over this. One of these days, for many of you, I'm going to stand beside you in the hospital in the hour of your death. Or maybe Sam will, like he did this morning at four o'clock. Or one of the others, or a friend. But I'm going to be there for some of you. And I want to have so preached and so lived and so ministered and so taught that I can lean over your bed and get out next to your ear as the respirator there and say in your ear, remember, Christ is your righteousness. Remember, Christ is your righteousness. Remember, Christ is your righteousness. Weak faith doesn't make Christ get less righteous. Strong faith doesn't make Christ get more righteous. Look to Christ. Rest in Christ. And I want you at that moment to understand me. I don't want there to have to be any long expositions. You can't do exposition at those moments. There has to be either a welling up of stored truth that we've lived and loved or panic. And so I long to so have preached and so have lived and so have taught that when I say, 
Christ is your righteousness. Everything in you will be saying yes. Even if you can't say yes, yes. Yes, I remember Romans 4. You took a long time on it. I remember. It was glorious. And right now, the Holy Spirit comes. He has dying graces for us, folks. He does. He does. He has dying graces for us. He will come and He will take out of your memory and He will draw up out of your heart the sweet things. And pastoral counseling at those moments is simply to touch those precious things so that they are quickened by the Holy Spirit and made alive for the sake of the peace of your soul as you get ready to meet King Jesus. I want you to understand it. I want it to taste sweet to you now so that it will be 10,000 times as sweet on the day that you die. And when you meet Him this morning... At four o'clock, Michael Boyum stood before the living Christ. At age 23, six weeks into his marriage. He is with Christ. And should the Lord have said to Michael, Welcome. Testify to me, Michael. Why? I should let you in. I don't know which text he might choose to use. I bent over him on Thursday and just poured out every one I could remember the last time I saw him. But I hope he says something like, the last year and a half I've been soaking indirectly in a great truth, Lord Jesus, about your righteousness that was wrought for me on the cross. And my reason for Claiming a place in heaven is because you were worthy of it. And I trust you as my righteousness. I think Jesus will leap for joy when he hears that from you or Michael. Well, if I keep talking about why I want to talk about this, I won't ever talk about it. So let me give you a brief answer and then... Just a few foundations from it, for it. Here's my answer to the question. No is my answer. You don't even remember the question. <laughs> no. When Paul says, faith is credited to you as righteousness, he does not mean that your faith is your righteousness, which is the foundation now of your getting right with God and your justification. That's not what he means. Rather, I believe he means that faith unites you to Jesus so that when Christ or God the Father looks upon your simple, childlike resting in Christ, what he sees is a union. Faith is the union of the soul with Christ. He sees a union. And in the union, he sees what is true of Christ as true of you. And Christ wrought a perfect righteousness that satisfies the Father. And therefore, he sees Christ's righteousness as your righteousness. And since faith is the unifying element of that, 
He says, I count the faith as the righteousness. But the faith isn't the righteousness. Christ has the righteousness. And it is imputed to you through this unifying element called faith. That's my answer to the question. Now the question is, is that so? I said it was so. You don't believe it because I say it's so. You should believe it because the Bible says it is so. And so we'll take the last few minutes to put four foundations under it. For those readers in the crowd, you might want to go to John Owen, volume 5, and look at his five reasons for why this is so. Or go to Murray's great commentary and see nine reasons given for why this is so. This particular interpretation I just gave. Or you can just sit now and listen to me and save yourself the reading. Though I'm not going to have time to give all of those, nor would I be able probably to argue so well. But here's my effort. First, let's look at verses 6 and 11. There's something remarkable here at the end of 6 and the end of 11. Because the wording about crediting is different here. You see at the end of verse 6, God credits Righteousness apart from works. Got a new object of the verb here. He doesn't say God credits faith as righteousness. He says God credits righteousness to you apart from works. So got a new dynamic going on here, different wording. Look at the end of verse 11. Same thing. That righteousness might be credited. It doesn't say that faith might be credited as righteousness. It says that righteousness might be credited. So now we have a different frame of thought in Paul's mouth here. He's talking about a righteousness here that is imputed or credited to you. The very least that that implies is this. It is a very good possibility in this chapter that when he says faith is credited as righteousness, he means the righteousness of God in Christ is credited to you through faith apart from works. It's a very good and likely possibility on the basis of those two texts, though I will bring in others to support it. So secondly, look at Romans 3.21 and 22. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, apart from the, the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Let me pause here and put in a parenthesis. Because one of you suggested to me I do this in this service, which I didn't in the last one. Say a word about the meaning of the righteousness of God. And here's the word I would say. Simply, you could say, it's God's always doing right, but that doesn't do much more than change the wording. The ultimately right thing for God to do is to always cherish what is infinitely valuable, honor what is infinitely honorable. And He is infinitely valuable. And he is infinitely honorable. And his glory is the greatest treasure in the universe. Therefore, the righteousness of God at its root and essence is God's unwavering allegiance to his own glory. It is always right 
for God to uphold his glory because his glory is the infinite value of the universe. Nothing surpasses the glory of God as what is supremely valuable. Therefore, the right thing to do is always to uphold the infinitely valuable in its rightness, in its value. And God always does that. We have fallen short of glory and are unrighteous. Therefore, what is to be imputed to us is God's or Christ's unwavering, never failing allegiance to the glory of God. So that our little failures to live up to the glory of God will not cancel us out of heaven, provided we are casting ourselves like helpless little children onto the righteousness of Christ, which is the perfect execution of a life to the glory of God. Close parenthesis. That's what I mean by the righteousness of God. Now, this righteousness... Ready to be imputed, it says in verse 21 of chapter 3, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. It is not faith. It is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So my second argument is that that text signifies that the righteousness is not the faith, or the faith is not the righteousness. The righteousness of God is coming to us, being manifested to us, being imputed to us through faith, not as faith. Here's my third argument, and here we go outside Romans for the last two. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you want to look at it, good. If you want to listen, that's fine too. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most important verses on the atonement and the imputation of the righteousness of God in Christ to us in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this, God made him, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now notice, a double imputation, right? Here is Christ, He knows no sin, He never sinned, and He's moving to Calvary to die. And it says, God made Him to be sin on our behalf. Your sin is credited or imputed to Christ. That's the first imputation. Then it says, and in him, that's the last phrase in the verse, in him, at least it is in my version, we become the righteousness of God. So he, we had no righteousness, he performed a perfect righteousness, and now in him, his righteousness becomes ours as our sin becomes his, a double imputation. I tell you, on the deathbed, what could be more comforting than to know that a lifetime of sin that I've committed and a lifetime of righteousness perfectly wrought by Jesus will be traded like that. He gets my sin, dies for them. I get his righteousness and live in it forever. That's the only thing that brings the fullness of glory to God and the fullness of peace to the human soul. And faith sees it, savors it, 
and rests in it. So believe. Believe. Now here's my last argument. Number four. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. I choose this out of the four or five others I could have chosen because it links with John Bunyan again. When Bunyan went home that afternoon from the field where he had met God and God had spoken to him about his own imputed righteousness, he went to the Bible because not being an enthusiast, as they called them in those days, he wanted to make sure that these impressions he was getting were rooted in Scripture. And so he asked God to direct him to warrant in the Bible for this experience. And he went to 1 Corinthians one thirty. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. By His doing, that is God, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So there's the union. God performs the union by faith. God unites you to Christ. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. There it is. Righteousness. And sanctification or holiness and redemption. And here's what Bunyan said. Bunyan said, By this scripture I saw that the man Christ Jesus is our righteousness and sanctification before God. Here therefore I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ Jesus. So what does the text say? Don't miss it. I want you to be able, I want you to, be able to, to share these things. You see, one of the reasons I left out when I was telling you why I preach on these things is I have a burden for the Manica people in Guinea, the Uzbeks, the Kazakhs, the Sukumu, the Somali. I have a burden, and the burden is this. They don't know this doctrine. They don't, by and large, know these truths. And the only way the Holy Spirit kindles the fire of faith in a people is by setting his match to the kindling of truth. And if they don't know it, there's no fire, no faith, no salvation, no church. So who's going to go to the Manica people and spend the next 20 years making the doctrine of justification by faith part of the warp and woof of their thinking so that the Holy Spirit has something to work with when we pray? He's not going to cause any people movement to Christ apart from truth. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And you speak that. It comes no other way. If you, if you sit there and say, my goodness, this is a complicated doctrine. Good grief. I hardly even know this doctrine. How could, how could the Somali Muslims know it? Or how could the Manica people know it? Or how could the Uzbeks know it? The answer is, they don't. And that's why you have to do what Paul did in Ephesians. Or in Ephesus. He rented the hall of Tyrannus in this pagan city that had never heard of Jesus Christ, were pagan to the core, and for two and a half years, six days a week, maybe seven, five hours a day, he taught... Why did he do that? Answer, they had no worldview to correspond to these things. You can't just take a four law or a six truths that I wrote and slap it in front of a Somali Muslim and say, pray to receive Jesus. They don't even have the framework to grasp these truths. Well, that was something I forgot to say a minute ago. Why do I linger over these things? 
Because I want there to be raised up in this church people who will just lay down their lives to teach the untaught in the world. Don't you want it for your children? Do you want to be able to to teach it to your children so that you can teach them what imputation means? Oh, for six-year-olds to know the word imputation. I mean, do you remember that great story about Moody going to speak at a youth rally in Scotland? And he said, what is prayer? And 500 kids, 10-year-olds, raised their hand. (laughs) And he called on one kid and he quoted the Westminster Catechism on prayer. Which I wish I could do for you right now because it would be a lot more impressive. (laughs) Long definition of prayer. Little children being catechized to know these glorious things. Let me close with uh, an analogy. The children are by and large not in the service. Maybe some are, that's good. But we're all in need of help here. So this was my effort to help the kids in the first service, and I close with this. An analogy, dangerous, liable to misunderstanding, but maybe it'll help. I have a 16-year-old son named Barnabas, who I I think is uh, across the street right now. If he's in the room, it's all right. I'm not ashamed to tell you this story because it's not true. I made it up. <laughs> Suppose I say to Barnabas one morning, uh, Barnabas, clean your room before you go to school. If this room is not clean tonight, you're not going to go to the ball game. And Barnabas plans poorly, procrastinates, goes to school, leaves the room uncleaned. I discovered this at about 10 o'clock and I clean the room perfectly. I put everything in its place. I vacuum. I dust. I make the beds. And it's perfect. And uh, he comes home after football practice and goofing around at just about the time he wants to leave to go to this game. And it hits him as he walks in the door. I forgot to clean my room. And he's very apologetic and very humble and submissive and takes the consequences that he cannot go to the game. And I say to him, Barnabas, I will credit your apology as a clean room. You can go to the game. I said this morning, if this room is not clean tonight, you will not go to the game. The room is clean. It's your room. Now, when I say to him, I credit your apology as a clean room, I do not mean the apology is any part of a clean room. It isn't. I cleaned the room. Sheer grace. Pure grace. I did it all And if it's anything, I did it. When I say I credit your apology as a clean room, what I mean is this. In my way of reckoning, in my grace as your father, I connect your broken spirit as the unifying element with the promise made to a clean room. You can go to the game. I simply reckon it to be so. And you may go. The room is clean. It's your room. And I count your apology 
as a clean room, go to the game. I do not mean the apology is the clean room. Therefore, when Paul says, God reckons Abraham's faith as righteousness, he doesn't mean the faith is the righteousness. He means Christ performed a righteousness. It is perfect. It is outside. It is pure grace. And God looks upon our faith as the uniting element. And he says, for faith's sake, I will count this righteousness, which Christ performed, as your righteousness, so that you may inherit the promises made to all the promises, or to Christ, and all the promises are yes in Him. That's what it means. So let me close by asking, what difference will this make in your life right now or this afternoon? What difference will it make? It made a difference for Luther. He said it was like, Walking into paradise made a difference for Bunyan. It was like the end of years of torture of conscience. What would you pay this morning for the knowledge and the assurance that your legal standing before the judge of the universe is as secure as the righteousness of his son? And the answer is you might pay anything. And the answer is you can't pay anything. And it's free as a gift. And if you will see it, savor it, receive it as a gift, cherish it, you will know a peace with God that we're going to talk about next week that passes all understanding. You will be a secure person. You won't need the ego supports any more of wealth and power and revenge. You will be free. And you will overflow with love. And you will lay down your life for the cause of Christ. For the joy that is set before you. Everlasting life at God's right hand. Justified and complete in Him. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that you would grant faith Open the eyes of the blind, O God. Remove the clouds of darkness and let the light of the glory of the gospel of the grace of God shine in this room. Through Christ I ask it. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.